Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, and welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We have an awesome guest for you today. Um, But Melissa, I know that uh, before we introduce our guest, I know that you wanted to share a little bit about equity and how it's kind of baked into all of the work that you do. And that's going to be our uh, foundation for our chat today. So Melissa, what are your thoughts on equity and how it's in everything that you do for your job in Baltimore? (laughs) Well, I think... (laughs) First of all, I think equity is becoming one of those buzzwords, right? So people all have their own definition of equity or, you know, we're just throwing it around, like, (laughs) make sure you get equity in what you're doing um, without really knowing what that means. Um, And I'll be the first to say, like, I I still need training in equity and in anti-bias and anti-racist education. I still need training in all those things, but... I will still say, I often get asked the question, you know, what are, what are you doing for equity? And I think to what I'm actually doing, which a big part of what I'm doing is working with teachers to figure out what do we do for students who are coming into middle school, high school, who are still not reading fluently, who still don't have those foundational reading skills. How do we get that for them when there isn't a dedicated intervention block or intervention teacher for, the, for just that? Um, And so when I get asked that question of equity, I just (laughs) pause and think, is that not what I'm doing? Like, am I not trying to level the playing field here? You know, it's like, what's the other thing that someone wants me to be doing? Um, I get a little confused. So when I saw um, Shanita's blog post about the science of reading and equity issue in itself, I was like, yes, see, this is what I'm talking about. (laughs) So I'm so excited to talk to Shanita today to talk about, um, you know, to make that connection for like, Yes, I am. I like it is actually part of what I'm doing, um, and not doesn't have to. I don't have to come up with the other thing that I'm doing yeah. that's going to address equity. Yeah, I love that. It's right. It's right in there, and I feel like that's that's really all the work that we're doing. It's it's in it's embedded within. So I can't wait to talk to Shanita either. Um, let's introduce her, Shanita. I'm going to say your full name because we practiced. So Shanita <laughs> Rapitalo. Did I get it? Yes, you got it. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the podcast. Yes. <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> yeah, we're so excited to have you and talk to you today. And Shanita, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Yes, yes, yes. So yes, I am Shanita Rapitalo, Um, which, <laughs> you know, it took me a really, just a side note on my last name. It took me a really <laughs> long time to adapt. This is my husband's last name. I'm originally Shanita McKay. <laughs> and it took oh. me about five years to change my last name. And so, <laughs> but I did, it was after we had kids. And I was like, okay, let me just hop <laughs> on this and get, like, stop playing these games and adopt my husband's name. Um, but yes, I am Shanita Rapitalo. Um, I'm currently an independent um, education consultant. My uh, focus is on literacy. Um, my husband and I created an LLC about three years ago called the Rapitalo Group. Um, and it was more so his work, which was around um, search work and equity. Um, and he has a whole list of services that he does for that. Um, and I added in my education and literacy component. Um, 
And I did that after working in education for about 16 years. So I've been two years as an independent consultant. So overall, this is my 18th year in education. Um, and I decided to venture out on my own. And I've worked in, I started teaching many, many years ago, I was 18, um, as a Teach for America Corps member um, in Washington, D.C. And footnote, um, Dr. Eric Green was the principal at the school. No way. <laughs> I told him I would mention that. <laughs> um, we love him. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely adore him. I'm so proud of the work he's doing. Um, and I moved to New York after about two years of teaching in Washington, D.C., and I taught in public schools in the Bronx. Um, I had a great time doing that. I uh, went into a graduate literacy program. I continued to work in elementary schools. Um, I worked in New York City's Department of Ed Central Office, um, doing lots of work there around <laughs> um, the New York City um, instructional expectations or citywide expectations when we were adapting the Common Core um, standards. And um, essentially, I then went back into um, District 79, which is our alternative education district. Um, and it was great working there because I was an instructional borough coach. And so I work with about 60 plus teachers in over 18 sites. And um, we work, we serve kids that are, um, they call it over age and undercredited. Um, and I call mm -hmm. it just our kids who are given their all for a second chance. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I was a little nervous because... I had been an elementary school teacher and I worked mm -hmm. at elementary schools for so long. I was like, well, what am I going to do with kids that are 17? <laughs> um, but the reason why my services or my skill set was needed so much is because um, over 50% of our kids are reading below a fifth grade level. And so um, a lot of our teachers are content specialists, right? They, they don't adapt, um, foundational skills into their teaching they they don't have that that's not what they were taught in, in their graduate programs um and so my my work was definitely needed there and then um I ventured off into the nonprofit world um, I worked with instruction partners for some time and then I decided you know what I'm going to do this independently um <laughs> and and hence here I am <laughs> here I am now excellent well Interesting to hear your your background, and I'm I love that you are so focused on equity at the moment, right? And your well, your always. husband's work, but always, yeah. Um, yeah. always. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could just like jump in and start talking to us about what I had brought up earlier, like how how what is the connection between reading, specifically like the science of reading, was what your <clears throat> blog post was about, um, and equity, like how are those two connected? Yeah. Um, it's, I always feel like we think of equity as like this footnote for like, um, how we instruct children when yeah, like, don't forget to do it. <laughs> yeah, like, um, and equity as a side note, like, yes, yeah, sprinkle it in, like you're, sprinkling, you know, some flavoring and on your instruction and that's not, <laughs> right. not how we should be thinking about equity in any kind of way. But, um, the, the instruction is the equity, right? Um, equity is 
in every single thing that we do. When we are providing kids with high line materials, when we are giving them sound instruction um, and quality instruction, that essentially is the equity piece. And I think um, we have not been hitting at marker because of the status of where we are in terms of um, where we are as a country with our literacy. I mean, it's there, this, there's a couple statistics that only stand out to me when I talk about equity um, and literacy or equity in a science of reading. And one of those are um, our NAEP results. And, you know, <laughs> since the 90s, since I was in elementary school, there's been no change in um, proficiency in reading. And we've been mm-hmm. kind of hovering in this 30%, 30, 30 to 30% mark um, since 1992, which is crazy to yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and I feel it's even more unfortunate that um, when we break that down by ethnicity, right? There are 47% of white students that essentially are scoring at or above profi- proficiency but only 20% of Black students and 20% of Latinx students score at or above proficiency. And, and so we see... like insane these, to me, Shanita. Like, I mean, yeah, 80, yeah. 80% <laughs> are not reading proficiently. That is... Yeah. Like, that's equity, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> or it's, it's not equity. <laughs> so it, I think what blows my mind is almost... It's kind of trippy how, like, we know what to do, but it's still not being done, right? Yeah. Um, we know that science has shown over and over again that the phonics approach and phonemic awareness and like those approaches to literacy work. Yeah. Like there is no denying that. And then we go into classrooms and we see teachers relying on cueing systems. I'm like, wait, no, right. that's not how it should go. Right. <laughs> um, and I think also people have a, a issue with like, um, seeing the connection between equity and the science of reading because they're thinking about equity only in like um, multicultural education, right? For well, sure. if, I, if I bring in songs or there was this one teacher I observed that called them hip hop Harry. I mean, he just <laughs> he to rap everything. Like he's like, yeah, you know, like this is how we're going to learn. I'm like, wait a minute, listen, <laughs> back that up. <laughs> And let's really think about what we're doing to our kids because that is not giving them any type of instruction that's going to be sound. They're not. Yes, I think those things are great in context, but I also think that we need to be relying on what does the science say? What does the research say? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you that like you just made me think of one of those too, where I had a um I I was observing a classroom and the teacher was trying to like connect to the students. And so we're in Baltimore, so they were like making um connections to the wire. And it was a, a seventh grade class, I think. It was definitely middle school. Um yeah. the kids had no idea. <laughs> like they had never seen it. They were like, We don't know what you're talking about. But somehow they then connected to Full House, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> that is <wild. laughs> it was a little wild. But I thought I was just like, uh, you know, sometimes there's assumptions made about what our students like, will connect to based on, you know, the color of their skin or where they live or things like that. And not necessarily always the case uh, too. Yeah. So that can always also go down the wrong road. 
it, it always goes <laughs> it's how first off um which i'm from baltimore i think i didn't say that in my introduction but born and raised in baltimore yeah grew baltimore up in, <laughs> grew up in emerson village oh. um <laughs> went to all public schools my entire um schooling and my my high school of course was which is the best high school in Baltimore City, Western Senior High. I knew you were going to say Western. I, knew that. <laughs> I went to Western. Um, yeah. So every time when I tell people I'm from Baltimore, they're like, "Oh yeah, The Wire." I'm like, "No, actually, right. Baltimore is such a great city. It is not just The Wire. Does that exist? Yes, but there's so much more to Baltimore for sure. So, yeah. But yeah. sorry, I digress. <laughs> But it's this whole idea of um, equity only being seen as this um, multicultural element, which essentially what they're hinting at is they're getting into like culturally responsive education, right? And that right. that's what they're getting into, which is <laughs> super important. But there's yeah. also three levels to that, right? There is yep. that that um, multicultural piece, right, where they have that cultural competency. But there's also a social advocacy piece. And there's also academic success. Mm-hmm. And the academic success piece is where you talk about the equity in your instruction. And I mm-hmm. think people kind of miss the miss the mark on seeing your practices through this lens as the equity that exists in, in your classroom. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about equity and in instruction, because I think that you know, we hear, there's a lot of terms thrown out around that, right? Like mm-hmm. scaffolding for students or differentiating, giving them what they need. And what, when you say equity and in instruction, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on what, what does that look like? And what does it mean? You touched on it already with the science of reading mm-hmm. um, and like doing what we know works based on science, <laughs> uh, but wondering if you have other thoughts on that too. Yeah, of course. So like giving students grade level work, Mm-hmm. Um, grade level or, and it's, I don't think people have bad intentions when they water down content, right. Or they lessen the, the cognitive lift of assignments and instruction. I, I, I hope, right. Um, that people don't go into classrooms saying, I'm going to destroy this child's life today by not giving them what they need. Because it's right. interesting, but no one goes into a classroom with that intention. No right. one. I will not believe that. But having great level um, work that's placed in front of kids every single day, um, it sets them up for success later on in life. And, and so much research has been shown where if even if the kid is behind, if you give them great level assignments and great level tasks, great level text, um, their rate of catching up is almost equal to the learning that is happening for kids that are already on that are already on level. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, like they're making these tremendous growth because you're giving them sound, solid, high quality instruction. In order to have that sound, solid, high quality instruction, you need high quality materials. Um, you know, I, 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 a lot of people are hearing this um, and a lot of people are saying this, but materials matter, right? I think that's an Ed Report motto, right? The materials mm-hmm. matter. Yeah. And um, I think that we really need to, to adhere to that. Um, and there's tons of things and tons of research around um, teachers who have a high quality materials in their classroom is almost effective as a teacher who has been teaching for many, many years. 
Um, and then I think also a part, a huge part of equity is you have to dedicate the time to your instruction, right? Mm-hmm. There needs to be time for instruction. There also needs to be time for professional development. There has there, time. We need time. Um, <laughs> and I know there are some people like, well, we don't have enough hours in a day. <laughs> well, actually we do if we're not wasting them, right? right. And right. think about like every time I, the opportunity myth for me. The I just pulled it up, Shanita. <laughs> <laughs> that was a game changer for I, I was mean, like I haven't changer. looked at it in a while. <laughs> yes, right. It was it was one of those things where it's like, holy crap, like yes, yes, yes. Yep. I knew this. I felt this. Like, so it's just it just put it all out there. And I mean, just in um, there's so many quotes that I can pull from that. But well, I'm gonna pull one uh, right now while you find yes. one. So I just, uh, hopefully you, you would have pulled one about the hour, the 133 <laughs> hours of instruction. Or, well, maybe it's different. It says students spent more than 500 hours per school year on assignments that weren't appropriate for their grade mm-hmm. and with instruction that didn't ask enough of them. The equivalent of six months of wasted class time in each core subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. And they even, they have, um, there's yes, yes. And of the 180 hours of classroom instruction in, in each core subject per year, 133 of those hours were not spent on work that was grade appropriate. There was just 47 hours that were grade appropriate. And so when I think about that, I also think about like, well, what does that look like in a classroom full of white children? And what does that look like in a classroom full of children of color? And classrooms with mostly white children tend to have 54% more grade level assignments, Mm -hmm. four times more grade level lessons, and 23% more experiences that are viewed as engaging. So we can't sit here and say that there is not an equity issue in our instruction that's happening. But yeah, I, that was, I, I mean, shout out to the folks who did that study because Yes. One, it was a lot of work and it was over many years, <laughs> but like it is so groundbreaking and so profound. And just, it, it says everything that I have witnessed with my own eyes, you know? Um, so I'm just very grateful for that. But that's it, right? Grade level work, um, time for actual instruction, um, making sure you have high quality materials and high quality instruction. And that essentially is a huge piece. Um, of, that's the huge piece of equity where that lies within literacy. Yeah. And we, and we yeah, oh, we talked. Hey, I go ahead, Lori. <laughs> you guys lost me, but I'm back on. Sorry. Yeah. And I know I can't oh, see no. you because my internet is down and I'm on my phone. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. But I'm back. <laughs> um, Shanita, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I wanted to underscore the importance of teachers holding those high expectations for all of those pieces yes. and that being a key ingredient as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, uh, what are your thoughts on how to shift teacher mindset to help encourage teachers and leaders to see that kids can do this hard work um, and can do great level work and should be given the opportunity. Like it's a gift to be given the opportunity to do grade level work and read grade level texts 
So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah. Mindset is tricky. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Um, It sure is. (laughs) It's so tricky because our bias, right? Everyone has bias. Everyone has unconscious bias, some conscious bias, unconscious, everyone has it. Right. And it's based off of our lived experiences. I mean, it's, there's, there's no one person that doesn't have it depending on what it is. It can be dangerous for another person or not. Right. Um, it can be intentional. It can be unintentional, but I think I've worked with, um, a group of teachers when I was in my old district. Um, and these are teachers that have been teaching for 10 years or more. So very veteran, um, experienced. And we noticed that the mindset of a couple of the teachers we were working with, my colleagues and I, other coaches as well, we noticed there wasn't a shift. And we were like, well, why is there, why we have these professional developments and we kind of outline a plan for what to do next. And then they kind of go back into their classrooms, they put it in their dusty toolkit and then put it right back on the shelf and no changes happen, which which is probably why I hate that term. People say, I'm going to put this in my toolkit. Um, <laughs> because I'm like, yeah, it's just yeah, it's, not, it's not my favorite either, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so we, um, we did survey a, a couple of surveys during, um, a research project that we conducted, um, where we just really wanted to see a shift in the mindsets of teachers by showing them that this work actually works with students. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we had a group of students that were, um, between they, the average age was 20, um, but between 20 and 21 years old, they were all um, newcomers to the country um, or they had English as a second language, not a second, English as a new language. Obviously, some of them came with like three or four language languages. Um, and over the summer, we worked with them for four weeks and we wanted to show teachers that if you take um this instructional approach to using the science of reading as your anchor, that essentially kids are going to grow um, in grade level. And so we did a, a number of things like throughout this summer and we took survey data along the way. Uh, we also observed teachers in action during their conversations. We um, interviewed certain teachers and we also analyze their notes. And this is where the mindset really mm-hmm. is shown for us because people can say anything, right? <laughs> what we noticed in their notes, there was one teacher note in particular that in her notes, it was kind of the same thing every day for about, I don't know, like 10 days or so. It was, it was more so like, oh, like the kids aren't moving. Nothing's really happening. It was kind of negative. And then there was this shift um, in her notes where she actually started believing that the kids um, were changing in their behavior and changing in um, how they're internalizing the, the work itself. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me, like, well, what caused this shift in her mm-hmm. mindset? It was a number of things. It was one seeing um, the actual work of the kids that was really key. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also observing the teachers in action, 
But more particular, it was observing someone who looked like her in action. So we had two Black educators that were teaching at first. And then one had to leave for, I think she had to go away for a vacation. Um, And then um, who was leading to work with us, actually. She taught the class for the remainder of um, the time being there. And seeing someone who looked like herself, which, I mean... It's not here nor there, but <laughs> uh, it changed her perception of the work. Mm. And it also That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting to us too, because we were like, wait, what? And we like because we yeah. were really trying to figure it you out. You keep going, and then I'm curious what you thought it was gonna be. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I'll share afterwards what I thought it would be. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And so there was this 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 shift in her mindset around like, well, I know that this will work if I have um, an educator that is knowledgeable to do the work. And also it, I know that this approach works because I see it in the kids' behavior and in the work that they produce. And so essentially like the mindset shift comes in, I think for teachers is when they can actually see the things that are happening with their students and really get in there and analyze student work, roll up your sleeves and really pay attention to what is being taught and how it's being taught. Um, that essentially, at least in this instance, will will get that mindset shift going to where teachers start relying on those old skills, right? Like, I'm just going to go back to what I know because this is how I was taught. I'm not going to try anything new because I don't know if it's going to work. And then there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's some insecurities in that. You don't want to be seen as someone who doesn't have control over your class or know what you're doing. Um, but the, the the shift comes in when you put students at the center of everything you're doing. Yeah, that's, I was thinking that. I, I was thinking the places where I've seen the most thought change or thought shift is when students are put first and, and when we see student action shift. But that's a really interesting piece that you mentioned that when educators can see themselves in other educators, like that adult connection piece, that that helps too with shifting mindset. And that makes sense because, I mean, it makes sense to me saying it when you said it, because I think like, all of the times when I've shifted my practice, I first have had to receive it and to be able to like first listen and then really think about it in order to be able to export it and affect change. And in order to do that work, even if I'm seeing my students do the work in order to do that internalization, it does help to have that thought partner, that person who you respect, that constituency around you who is there to, um, so, so like support you in the work. So mm-hmm. that's making a lot of sense as you're saying it, but my first, like my gut reaction was students. Um, yeah. but I, I, I think that's a really important finding to note. Yeah. I mean, it should be students, but you also are the one doing work. So you have to include yourself in there somewhere. That's right. I think like <laughs> our, our like nervousness about seeing that or kind of our like, what, <laughs> for lack of better words, part of that was like, is she seeing this as because this person is an, an expert in her field and that's why, um, but we were, my hope is that that was the case. And um, are we seeing this though, because like this person is 
is is of a different race than her and she had underlying bias about the teachers mm. that were first presenting the work um which i come across all the time but it's i think like the minute we had the the shift and the constant thing that we had to draw out from her is that this isn't about what the person looks like in front of you that's teaching you this work you need to get it where you can the focus needs to be on the kids that are sitting right in front of you. So all of those unconscious biases that you have against people who don't look like you need to be checked at the door because right now the work is, this is what's moving our kids. So this is where you need to focus or you need to get a new career field because obviously you're not in it. Yeah. That makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit if you're okay with it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'm wondering about, I want to dig in a little bit around specific literacy strategies and, or, you know, just reading instruction in general. Um, What's been your journey, Shanita? I know that Lori and I both have our own that we've shared on different podcasts in different ways of, you know, learning what is based in science, what's not, things we've done in the past where we're like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that for so long. Um, just wondering, like, what for you, um, have you done along the way, realized that's an inequitable practice, maybe changed? Um, yeah, or, or what have you seen in other teachers that you would also, you know, you know, recommend that they stop doing because it's inequitable and what would you recommend they shift to? Yep, absolutely. Um, when I, honestly, when I think about um, equity and literacy instruction, I think back to my kindergarten teacher, which doesn't sound like, like, I, I'm sure like folks are surprised when I say that because they're like, wait, when did you go to elementary school? <laughs> I'm like, that's not important. My age is not important in this. <laughs> um, but I, I started elementary school um, after I did a Head Start program at St. Bernardine's Church. Um, it was called Glover Tillman and they had an excellent program um, for kids in the neighborhood. And um, when I went to elementary school, I went to Mary E. Rodman, um, elementary school number 204. Right. <laughs> um, and Miss Watts was my kindergarten teacher. And Miss Watts taught my oldest aunt. She taught my mom. She taught oh. my two younger aunts. She taught me. And I God think she my after me. Yeah. So, no, <laughs> Watts is probably you know, teaching in heaven right now, but <laughs> um, I, I don't think that, cause she was pretty old when I, she had me. So I def I don't think that she's still, I mean, if she is, she's probably 120 by now, but <laughs> this uh-huh. was an amazing, amazing educator. And I remember um, us always talking and sounding out, talking and thinking about like letters and sounds mm-hmm. and um I don't remember um, her telling us to like guess the word. Like, I, I don't remember that approach in my kidnapping model. That was a while ago. But I do remember like our fun phonics games. And I remember like manipulating the letters or the tile letters. Um, and, you know, she had like this amazing approach. And every single one of my family members, at least, were reading um, full books 
definitely by mid-kindergarten, not even at the end, by mid-kindergarten. Um, and I attribute my reading success to Miss Watts for sure. Um, but that was my experience. Maybe she'll be listening, Shanita. She might be listening. Oh my gosh, I know. <laughs> so, I, I attribute my literacy knowledge to Miss Watts. So um, shout out to Miss Watts from 204. Um, but I think about um, that approach. And then I think about um, approaches that I've seen mm-hmm. over the years. Um, and one really popular approach that I've seen, especially in um, the elementary schools I worked in here in New York, were whole language approaches, right? Mm-hmm. And this assumes that um, that children learn to read if they're given good books and they're taught cues. Um, and you give them like certain strategies to support their reading, you know, like you look at the picture, you use context. And... I mean, cognitive scientists have disproved this theory many, many years ago and many, many times, but this method is hugely popular for teachers who believe that, you know, this type of approach build a love of books. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels good, right? It feels good. Yeah, it feels really good. (laughs) And it sounds good, too. (laughs) <laughs> doesn't it um and it is like you know it sound it feels so good and the kids are happy you know because they're so successful um and the real goal here is really to comprehend text not to read the words um and they feel like if you understand what's happening in the text then you're reading which we know is is definitely not true right yeah you know what i oh sorry go ahead melissa i was just gonna say real quick you said that they feel successful and what you're saying there is like because you're you can just like guess at what a word is, right? And just fill in a word that you might not know that you feel like you're reading because I, you know, I said horse, but it's really pony, but I, 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 I still get it. <laughs> but, right. but, but that builds up as you get older and you're yeah. just guessing at what words are instead of really being able to figure out what the word is and yeah. doesn't lead for success long-term, but feels like success in that short term. A hundred percent. It is successful in the short term is not successful in the long term. And I think like what phonics instruction does, um, and I've seen this, not, I'm not physically seeing this, but I've seen studies of this. <laughs> um, it activates parts of the brain that's associated with phonology, right? And if we're teaching kids to focus on letters and sounds, what we're actually doing is we are increasing activity in areas of the brain that's responsible for reading. Mm -hmm. That blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Like you are (laughs) making your mind work. And what several studies have shown is when kids are using those cues and just memorizing words or um, yeah, using visual cues um, and, and doing, using miscues as a way of reading, essentially they're not activating that part of the brain. And honestly, like you can't memorize every word in, in, you know, every, uh, you can't memorize every word in a book. You also can't continue to just guess, (laughs) you know, like catch up with you in the wrong, in the long run. And what we end up producing is functionally illiterate adults. That's essentially what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking like as a parent, this, what you shared makes sense in terms of. Like, I'm just, I always try to think about this. Like, why haven't parents revolted against what the school system is doing? Like, Mm -hmm. I have a, 
I've, I've, Melissa and I are working on like a whole series of podcasts about this, but yeah. be, you know, I feel like it's like, uh, Natalie Wexler said, it's the sleeping giant. They're the sleeping giants. Like parents mm-hmm. can wake up and, and hear this stuff. But I think that they've been led so astray by, you know, um, well-intentioned educators saying things like just surround them with books. Let's, let's surround them. With, just read to them. It, you know, it's like anything. If you don't give someone the tools to learn how to do something, mm-hmm. they can't do it. You know, I mean, you can surround me with flowers. We were talking about this in our pre-call. You could surround me with flowers and plants all day long, but if uh, I don't have the, the knowledge or the tools to know how to take care of them, you know, how much sunlight, you know, I mean, all day they're going to die. So yeah. I, I, that's a really silly uh, comparison, but, you know, I think it's the same kind of idea. Like we, we need to give the tools and I'm so curious always like to hear you talk right now. I'm like, what are, what would parents think to hear you share this information? I think a lot of them, it probably would resonate with them. Hey, I didn't learn this in school. I was surrounded with books and now I struggle when I'm reading and they might not have the literacy language for it, but I think it would really resonate. And I think it also, you know, would resonate what they're hearing from their child's teacher and probably what they're seeing. Um, I just think parents might not know what school should be. Um, and that's because they've maybe been led astray by teachers who also don't have the science of reading knowledge. Again, not to their, not to their own fault, but just because they don't have it. So I'm, I'm like curious what you think about that. You're nodding your head. So I assume as a parent, you're probably, it's also <laughs> yeah. resonating with you. <laughs> well, yeah, especially, I mean, I have, I have a first grader. I have two kids. I, I have a first grader and I have a 14 month old. Um, and I, teachers, well-meaning teachers, um, I will talk about like the educate, like how we're educated as teachers in, in mm-hmm. a second. But as a parent, we trust that when we send our kids to school, that they're learning. And I think part of the fault in that, and, and not to say that parents are not involved because parents are 100% involved, um, or at least as, as best they can be, right? When we send our kids to school, we are expecting the best, right? Like I'm expecting that you are going to school and you're listening to your teacher and you're learning the content and things that you need in order to be a successful adult in the future. Um, I, I have these conversations with my daughter's teachers about pedagogy and instructional practices and things like that, because I'm an educator. So I have the, the know with all to understand that, okay, I saw that you were um, giving my child a leveled reader. Let's have a conversation about that. And I have had those conversations with her teachers and her teachers are awesome. Um, and, you know, there have been some shifts in how she's being educated based off of those conversations. Right. right. Um, the hard part is most those. parents don't have exactly. the background that you do. <laughs> that's and exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, you know, she also goes to a private Montessori school. Mm-hmm. So it's a big difference um, in the, the the approach and the type of learning that she's even receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel that parents, uh, at least parents that I've talked to, and I'm a huge parent advocate. Like, I feel like there's so much power in parents. Um, I couldn't agree more. 
But it's along the lines of we have good hopes that we're sending our kids to school to learn. Now, what the intricacies of that learning is, like, that's your responsibility. You tell me where I can assist you in that. And I think that's the approach that parents take. So what was the shift, Janita, for that teacher from a leveled reader? What happened? (laughs) So that, that was a very interesting conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Or or you can talk about it more generally and not that. (laughs) But the shift shift for her, um, more importantly, was that I'm not going to base her sole instruction based off of this. This is more so like we're using this as um, a support and not as an instructional practice. and then they walk me through like what the ex- actual instructional practice is. So I said, okay. And also um, she has an individualized plan, right? Like they all do mm-hmm. um, in her class. And each week they get a work plan. And I look at the work plan. I'm like, mm, let's look at this. So maybe this doesn't make sense or this doesn't work. But then when, the, when they explain it, like in how their curriculum spirals, et cetera, um, and it's specific to her learning needs, not like generalized learning needs. Um, it makes a hundred percent sense. And so they have made me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm glad though that you, you advocated and that you asked questions <laughs> for any parents listening. That's really important. You know, if you don't understand, ask questions. And if what, if what you're being told doesn't make sense, like if you are being told, like, just surround your kids with books and that to you, you're like, well, I mean, how do I teach a kid to read just by surrounding them with books? Like if it doesn't make sense, like ask more questions, do more research. There's always more to learn in, you know, that that the education field is evolving right now into embracing more of the science of reading. So for, for parents listening, please ask questions. And I think, Tanita, that's a great example of asking questions, having the conversation, and then you're not left feeling confused or um, upset about what's happening. You're like, okay, I get it now. Thank you. You know? Yeah. Especially if your kid is not successful, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm on the other end of that where like, I, I, I want to push her a lot more. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my husband always makes fun of me for that, but <laughs> I'm like, yeah, she's here. I need her to be here. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what my parents were with me as well. You know, they were like, I would come home, you know, with ease because that's the grades we got ease for excellent. And, you know, if they see a G, they're like, okay, that's good. Now, how can we get an E for this grade next time around? You know, so <laughs> High expectations. Yeah, exactly. Of parents and of teachers, right? They have to go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, is it time, Melissa? No. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I have like a million more questions for Shanita that I know. I to ask her. Maybe, but... maybe we can do a part two and <laughs> my, my internet two. won't go out when we do a part two. <laughs> yeah, right. But for, t- for today, we'll ask Shanita for her piece of advice for our listeners, or I think you might have a couple, <laughs> which is just fine. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I just want to encourage everyone, um, educators in particular, to be disruptors of inequity, right? Advocate for an aligned curriculum or high quality mm-hmm. materials. Um, if you are going into education or if you um, are already there but want to expand your knowledge, choose a grad school program that specifically calls out equitable instructional practices 
and um, advocate for reading professionals or professional development at your school that's going to teach you um, about the science of reading or that's going to teach you about equitable instructional practices. Because we know these things exist in our education. We can't ignore the research. We can't ignore these statistics, but we do have the power to do something. And so I'm going to leave you with um, one of my favorite writers of all time. My second favorite writer, my first is Toni Morrison, um, but James (laughs) Baldwin. And one quote that he has that always resonates with me is, not everything faced can be changed, but nothing is changed unless it's faced. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so good. That was a mic drop, right? Totally. I know. I love that. that we good pause afterwards. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I like that resonates with me too, because I, I forget who I was. I think I was sharing with one of my college uh, friends and she just went back to teaching this year in a pandemic after being a stay-at-home mom for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said, sometimes I feel like I'm like just like trying to be a renaissance leader of science of reading. And, you know, I'm I'm always like pushing the envelope just a little bit farther, just a little bit farther. And um, and she was like, well, I wouldn't know know anything about the science of reading if we weren't friends. So keep Mm. going. And I was like, oh, you're, you know, you are a teacher in a county in the state of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And if we weren't friends, you would have no idea. Um, And that's, a little bit scary. I mean, they're doing a little bit of work, but not to the extent that obviously she knows because I just talk her ear off about it, but (laughs) it's true. Like we have to face this. And I just think like in our lifetime, I hope that each of us gets to see this big shift happen and know that we had a small part in it through these conversations. Um, Like I'm really, really hopeful about that. And I think that's what resonates with me about your quote. Yeah. I'm hopeful too. I am. I really am. (laughs) Me too. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Shanita, for being here with us today. Thank I you. I hope we can talk again. Yeah, we'll schedule yeah. a part two. Yeah, right? Let's, <laughs> yeah, let's schedule part two. We have so many more stories for you to share. <laughs> yes, thank I you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.